Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Today, more than half the world's population lives in cities. In every corner of the world, people are moving to cities at a rapid and geometric pace. The urban migration taking place today is both historic and inevitable. Our cities represent the ultimate triumph and organizing principle of humanity. They are more than the concrete jungle portrayed by Billy Wilder in The Lost Weekend or the human zoo that Desmond Morris talked about. The great San Francisco columnist Herb Cain once said of cities that they should not be judged just by their length and width, but by the broadness of their vision and the height of their dreams. They are one of the ultimate achievements of mankind, and we're going to talk about cities today with my guest, Monica Smith. Monica L. Smith is a professor of anthropology and professor in the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA, where she holds a chair in Indian Studies and serves as the director of the South Asian Archaeology Laboratory. It is my pleasure to welcome Monica Smith here today to talk about her new book, Cities, The First 6,000 Years. Monica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a delight to have you here. Talk a little bit about the fact that that cities are something that we, we take for granted, that but that, as you point out in the book, they haven't always been with us, that, that they're really, it was a creation that happened, as you say, 6,000 years ago. Talk a little about that first. Absolutely. You know, cities are not the natural habitat of our species. Uh, for the last 200,000 years or so, we have been perfectly happy, settled in small villages, and we certainly could have accommodated the world's population of 7 to 8 billion people in those same villages spread out all over the planet. But there was something more that was in our human capacity to interact, and that something more first came to light in ritual centers. So places like Gebekli Tepe, which is in modern-day Turkey, or an example that's perhaps a little better known, Stonehenge. So Stonehenge is a place where people came together and created something distinct and new. They made monumental architecture. They had ceremonies and festivals. But the thing about a place like Stonehenge is that after the festival was over, people were meant to go away and uh, go back to those small villages But having had that experience of togetherness and jostling with strangers and having new experiences and maybe finding new romantic partners, people wanted to make that atmosphere permanent. And that's what made cities come into existence. In a a way, cities fulfilled a kind of part of human nature that, that we didn't know we needed until we found those cities. Yes, exactly. You know, in the book, I make the analogy to the Internet as something else that is also new that we've experienced in our lifetimes, most of us. We did not have the experience of the Internet when we were young, and yet now we cannot imagine living without it even though it comes with its own set of opportunities and problems as we are continually learning. We cannot turn the clock back. And the same thing was true of cities, that once the city form had been invented, it became so compelling that we couldn't imagine life without it. It's an interesting analogy talking about the Internet because there's this parallel development, and and, and it's arguable, I suppose, whether there's any connection, but... At the same time we've seen the internet evolve, we've also seen globally this movement back to cities, which seems to be inevitable and ongoing at this point. 
That's right. You know, more than half of the world's population lives in cities today, and that proportion is just going to increase. And some of our cities are already astoundingly large. If you think about Mexico City, uh, it has a population of about 21 million people. Tokyo is even larger, it's 39 million people. And yet there is no point at which you can say that the city is full or that people are discouraged from going there. On the contrary, as cities get larger, people want to move there in even greater proportions, especially young people, for the varieties of entertainment, education, and employment that are possible there and really nowhere else. It's interesting that we think of this phenomenon, you talk about young people, we think of this phenomenon of the suburbs, and and there are a lot of people that try to make the argument today that, well, all these young people are moving to the city, that once they get older and develop families, etc., that they will move out of the cities. But the evidence seems to suggest exactly the opposite, that, that people are moving to the cities to stay in the cities. Exactly. You know, people are moving into cities because there are distinct opportunities at every stage of life. So people moving into cities and living there with families realize that their commutes are much shorter. They can have their children exposed to a whole variety of very diverse cultural opportunities just by walking out the front door. Um, we also see that people are moving back into cities at retirement age because if you think about what a city can offer, and first of all, you can get around uh, in short distances by walking, which in rural places, people can become very isolated. Uh, in cities, older people can have things delivered to them very easily, whether it's pharmaceuticals or food on a daily basis. And then, of course, a very high-end and specialized medical care is also concentrated in cities. So it doesn't really matter what age you are. The cities provide a kind of opportunity that you really cannot match in rural places. And technology, it seems, has only encouraged this movement to the city, not the reverse, as some might have expected. Exactly. If you think about big companies like uh, Facebook and Google, you might suppose that given that they are entirely digital, they could be anywhere. Uh, They could be located in a state where land is cheap. But instead, they want to be right downtown in the world's busiest cities. And that's because of all the opportunities that are offered to the employees in their off hours. You know, employees want to live in places that are exciting and diverse. And that's what cities already have going for them. So it makes perfect sense for even digital companies to want to be right in the heart of those urban environments. Talk about the creative energy of cities and and kind of the historical background for that. Exactly. What you have in cities is opportunities for manufacturers to try out things that are new and different. If you're in a rural place or a village place, the demand for new things is relatively low. And when new things are needed because something got broken, people tend to want something that is exactly like what you had before. If you're a creative manufacturer and you want a bigger audience, what you want to do is be in a place where people are going to be buying new things all the time and where some people are willing to take a chance on something that is different or unusual or maybe even a beta version that doesn't actually sell but that gives you a chance to try out something new. And all of that creativity is happening in cities. Think about where new technologies are developed, but think about where fashion happens and where fast fashion happens. 
Fashion Week is always in a city because that's where you've got enough people to have someone be edgy and new and try out something utterly creative and distinctive. Talk a little bit about the architecture of cities and how it has evolved with these needs that we have been talking about, that that people have both shaped the design and the design has shaped the evolution of cities. It's been kind of a chicken and egg situation. Yes, exactly. You know, as an archaeologist, I can tell you that both modern and ancient cities are spatially very similar. So you have a downtown area where you have a concentration of buildings, usually with some kind of a formal grid pattern. Um, And then you also have all that infrastructure that people need, like streets and canals and bridges to bring them together. You've got big open spaces like plazas that can be used for gatherings of all different kinds. And then you've got these social similarities of wealthy people and poor people and categories of people in between, like the middle class. All of that is reflected in the kinds of architecture that people put together in cities. And one way of thinking about that is that cities are dynamic because they are never finished. Even the downtowns of our modern cities are constantly being worked on with buildings that are being torn down and replaced with things that are new and innovative. So the turnover of architecture is like the turnover of fashion. There is always something new that's being envisioned in our infrastructure. Think about how many cities are trying to put in mass transit systems uh, the way we are in Los Angeles. The city is already there, but we're trying to make it better by redesigning portions of it. One wonders what it says for what the life of archaeologists will be like 500 years or 1,000 years from now as, as they try to interpret the cities of today. Exactly. Well, it's already pretty terrific to be an archaeologist <laughs> now. Um, so I can imagine that my colleagues in the future will have an equally good time. But what they'll be digging is the layers of habitation that are historically going down, uh, you know, not only from our time to the time before, and they'll have a, a long sequence of urban habitation that we can already see in many of the world's cities. So even though we might think of, you know, the collapse of ancient civilizations or the abandonment of ancient cities, most ancient cities are still underfoot. Uh, think about places like Athens or Rome or London or Kyoto in Japan or Delhi or Xi'an in China, Marseille, Jakarta, Istanbul. All of those are places that have been inhabited for hundreds of years, and they certainly promise to be places where people will continue to live for a very, very long time. Historically, what has been the argument against cities? What has been the pushback historically? Well, actually, there has been relatively little pushback historically. Cities have always been the places where political leaders want to be because that's where the followers are, that's where administrations are, that's where the bureaucrats are. And I think that the pushback against cities is something that we might feel in the modern world because we are worried about pollution or crime or traffic. And yet, I can tell you for every person who says they're going to leave the city and go farm goats in the countryside, there are 100,000 people clamoring to get in. It is perhaps a little bit fashionable 
to, you know, make a critique of the city. But even most of those people who make a critique, when they leave town for the weekend and go to the countryside, they are more than happy to come back on Sunday afternoon and get right back into that lively life of the city. And has that always been true? I mean, is there historical evidence to support that, that 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 trend, exactly what you're saying, which certainly is true today, no question about it, has that always been the case? I think it's always been the case. Our sense of that love-hate relationship where on the same day we can say, this city is great, and then we can say, oh, this city is awful when we're faced with traffic or something else that we don't like. Those things are preserved in the ancient writings of city dwellers who came before us. There's a Roman writer, Juvenal, who wrote about 2,000 years ago about what it was like to be in the city. Like, it's crowded and you can't walk on the sidewalk because somebody's poking you in the ribs as you go by. You just have to laugh because it sounds exactly like, you know, being at a fair or a festival or a ball game where everybody is trying to get in and out of the building um, at the same time. But we also have these same philosophers who then, you know, they go out into the countryside and after a few days, they're also a little bored. You know, they miss that life of the city or the, the sports stadium or the political life of the city. And so like the internet, which is both attractive and problematic, once people had cities, it was a kind of thing that we couldn't live without. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about the socioeconomic hierarchy of cities and, and what history teaches us about that. One of the things that I point out in this book is that the development of the middle class and the development of urbanism were simultaneous coevolutionary phenomena because in rural places, you didn't really need middle managers. There was not very much to keep track of. You could treat, keep track of your own stuff in your own house without any difficulty. And there were occasionally some wealthy chiefs who lived in the village and who also had all of their own stuff under their own control. But in a city, you suddenly had much larger enterprises and you had larger numbers of people and you needed someone to keep track of all that stuff. There's a tablet from the ancient city of Nippur that records that one of the temples in Nippur had 350,000 sheep and goats. So you can just imagine all of the managerial expertise that was required to keep track of all of those animals and their wool and fleece and the herders and the keepers and the food to feed them and when they were supposed to come in and out of the city. It sort of makes you think of the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, <laughs> the scale of those interactions. And so you had the beginnings of a what we can call a middle class, like a professional category of people who worked with their brain instead of with their bodies. And that gave them a little bit better salary, which then led to some of the kinds of consumption opportunities and even gentrification opportunities in ancient cities that are exactly the same as what we see now. Talk a little bit about the authenticity of cities. You know, we've had this movement, I guess, that began in the 70s or or maybe even a little bit before, this kind of new urbanism, you know, fake cities kind of for for lack of a better description, and and how that really can't capture the authenticity of, of the cities that we're talking about. 
You know, in the 1970s, there were a lot of ways that people were thinking about cities that were really fairly negative. If you go into a library and look in their urban studies section, there's uh, a whole series from the 1960s and 70s. The titles of the books are all very depressing. It's like the city is dying, our cities are doomed, and so on. And we realized that that line of argument was not successful because people kept moving into cities anyway. So we had to flip the script as researchers and say, okay, cities are challenging, but what is it about cities that draw people in and how can we make cities better with the kinds of technology and knowledge that we have? And so this sense of whether a city is authentic or not, I think is very much reflected in the fact that although we are heavily globalized as a planet, Every city still has its own character. When you say San Francisco or London or Tokyo or Johannesburg, people have an image in their mind that comes up instantly as to the character of that particular city. Have we become more homogenized in terms of our cities, and and has it had any impact? Cities are places of enormous diversity, and they are places where migrants go. All over the world, when people migrate from the countryside or when they migrate from one country to another, they almost always head to cities because there are already pockets of diversity there. And cities are places where many different types of people mix, not only different wealth categories and different professions, as we've already mentioned, but also people of different ethnicities, different languages. When we think about where different kinds of communities are, like LGBTQ communities, those are also overwhelmingly in cities. And so cities are places where people experience diversity at a whole variety of scales, whether it's something as simple as a variety of ethnic cuisines to things that include a variety of ethnic co-workers or a variety of different kinds of living arrangements. And so cities are places where diversity is most likely to thrive. And that's also what gives them their character and makes them exciting as a destination. It's also what drives a phenomenon that we've seen happen historically sometimes, which is that leaders tend to fear cities. Well, they fear and they love (laughs) in the same capacity as ordinary residents fear and love. And, you know, I think we also see that um, politically in our country with recent elections where there is a sharp distinction between the urban and the rural. And I think that that's an important way of recognizing that an urban way of life really is a distinct type of thought process in addition to a distinct type of architecture. And that sense of migration and diversity is also part and parcel of urban life that people do tend to absorb in their social interactions and uh, with their vote. And of course, the the overriding part of that, as, as Jane Jacobs used to talk about, is the idea that the people in the city are part of the design of the city. They're part of the architecture of the city itself. Yes, exactly. The thing that makes cities is not some impersonal bureaucrat sitting in a place far away, but the people we encounter every day. And one of the amazing things about urbanism is the extent to which we interact with strangers every day. That is also not 
part of our human background. Our human background, living in small villages, meant that strangers were only very occasionally introduced into that village environment, maybe a new bride or a trader coming through and so on. But in cities, you are with strangers all the time. And that, I think, says something powerful about the human capacity to connect. And when you're in traffic, some stranger will let you through when you need to change lanes. When you're walking around in the city, a stranger will hold the door open for you if you've got an armful of packages. That's a wonderful statement about human capacity for sociability that is really accented and celebrated in cities. Monica Smith, her book is Cities, the First 6,000 Years. Monica, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.